All right, so we're doing this thing called a Bible study. If you're new here tonight, we study the Bible. It's pretty important. In fact, on this past Sunday, you can't listen to the podcast yet because we're like a month behind on podcasts. Everyone inundate Kevin Parker with emails and questions and texts about where the podcast is. I love you, Kevin. You probably won't hear this for a month because, anyway, I'm such a jerk. Um, Take out your Bible and turn to Matthew. I'm sorry. I know. I love you, Kevin. Kevin does so much for us and for free. Matthew, we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, what's amazing about the Sermon on the Mount is that it is... It's not like you have to make it applicable. You don't have to. Every, the big buzzword in Christianity today is relevance. Like, it's, not, it's just not relevant to me. But the whole word of God is relevant no matter if you're in like uh, Amos or Hosea or if you're in Matthew or Colossians. The whole word of God is relevant. Uh, on Sunday, we talked about uh, the word of God and the importance of being in the whole council of God's word. If you weren't here... Uh, Sunday, Sunday was really, was really like, wow, uh, if we got this and we move forward, then God's going to do some pretty sweet stuff in our lives. Uh, we ended by looking at Psalm 119 and asking God to develop that heart within us that we would be able to say, just like David, uh, that the, from God's precepts, from God's commandments, we have reverence. From how can a young man keep his ways pure by keeping them or guarding them according to the word. And so um, a lot of you have been going through Psalm 119 this week. Uh, God's word is sufficient. God says in Psalm 119 that he takes his name, his character, who he is, his reputation, and he elevates his word to the same level as his reputation. So what you are holding in your hands is is not some like, God book for life, or it is the very breath of God. Second Timothy says that. It is the very thing, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. It is what the Holy Spirit uses to grab hearts, grab attention, and to change them from death to life. Okay, So that's why we emphasize the word of God and not necessarily crazy random stories that are kind of funny that happened in my life. We want to emphasize what the Word of God says. So the more you're in the Word, the more transformed, redeemed, the more washing you have um, from this system of the world that's out there. Okay, So that's why we're always like, well, in the Word, in the Word. Everything we do should center around the Word. Thus, you're here when the Rangers are playing in the second game of the World Series after they got spanked last night um, studying the Bible. So... We're studying Sermon on the Mount. What is going on in Sermon on the Mount? What have we seen so far? We're only like four or five verses into it. What have we seen? Poor in spirit. Help me out. What's that mean? Not relying on yourself. Relying on your, not relying on yourself, but relying on God. In fact, not only not relying on yourself, but you have nothing to bring to the table. You are completely inept to do anything in regards to your salvation. You and every other person who does not know Jesus is just a dead man walking. You are blind, you are deaf, you are unable to understand and ascertain biblical or spiritual things. In fact, in Paul says in Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians, that you can't even understand the word of God because you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. That's how big of a deal it is. So people that you know when you do a Bible study, you're like, I just don't understand. A a big thing, even if you're here with us on Thursday nights or Sundays or wherever, or you're over there with John when uh, he's going through the word, and you're not getting it, you don't understand and you consistently don't understand, that's a, that's a check for you of, why, why am I not understanding this? If the Holy Spirit is in me, why am I having such a hard time understanding this? Because God gives wisdom. Wisdom is Jesus, Colossians 2 says, okay? So, poor in spirit. Poor in spirit leads to mourning. I'm telling you what, the sex trafficking stuff is cause for mourning. 
the stuff as I'm looking at things that are going on around the world, especially in our area um, in regards to, I know everybody hates this that, that's our age because the generation before us, it's what they always talk about. But the whole abortion thing, like just mourning, mourning over our, our society and, and the way we take women's rights and, uh, and, and all that and, and want to die for Shamu, but we give, don't give a rip about a baby. Or things that are happening in our city all around us um, in regards to trafficking, indentured servanthood, um, where people are just enslaved. Uh, it, it just breaks your heart. And so mourning then turns into this next thing that we looked at, blessed are the meek. And last week we talked a little bit about what meekness is. It's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild, where he's got the coiffed hair and the blue sash and the come to me kitties um, kind of thing. That sounded weird. But it is, what is meekness? What is meekness? Gentle strength. Strength under control. Unlimited power under the restraint and the control and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So meekness then, if one is meek, then you place yourself under the authority of this characteristic of God that we've been talking about a lot. Anybody know the characteristic of God that just, here's meekness and here's the overarching theme of, if you're meek, then you get this about God. He is sovereign. Somebody help me out with what sovereign means. In control. Like, let's unpack that a little bit. What's it mean that he is in control? Well, well, let me tell you. What, Polly? What's it mean that God is in control? Haley. He reigns over all things, okay? Give me, give me some, here's the definition of all. Give me some things that fit into that little Tupperware container of all. He is in control. I like that. He's in control of nations. He's in control of America. He is in control. So, you see some of the things that are going on in America, and the way in which some believers respond is, is God in control? And they fret, and they worry, and they freak out. What else? Nations. He's in control of Indonesia. He's in control of what's happening all over the world right now. That's, whoa, God is huge. That's That's amazing. In fact, he is a God of the nations. His heartbeat is not for white people in America and DFW, but for the nations. Cool. What else? In our Tupperware of all, we've got nations. What other cookies we got in there? Huh? Rulers. Saddam Hussein is under the sovereignty of God. Shut up. Yes. Does he, is he aware of that? No. Who else? Rulers. Your boss is under the authority of God. Hallelujah. Conviction just gripped my heart. What? Illness. Okay? Illness is under the authority of God. Now, here's the deal with all of these things. God is sovereign, and there is this thing working within all of our veins and in creation called sin. And so as a result of sin... Here's God's sovereignty, here's sin. Sin messes not only with your body, not only with your relationships, but the creation is under subjection to the fall. Okay? 
So a lot of the stuff we deal with is a direct result of sin, but most of the time we don't get past looking at, well, it's just sin or the devil's really trying to get me to realize the overarching theme of it all is God is sovereign. If you have a question about it, read Job 1 and 2, where the enemy has to come to God in order to touch a hair on Job's head. It'll mess with you. Or read Isaiah where it says that God is the one who causes light and darkness. Who He is the one who brings about calamity. What? Yes, God. But God is good. Yes, he is. He uses calamity in order to bring about glory for himself. Crazy. What else? Some other cookies in there. Ourselves. Help me out with that. That's a whole nother Tupperware. Okay, keep going. What else? Daily life. Give me something. He is sovereign over a car accident. I need to sit down for this story. Oh, not to you? Okay. A 93-year-old... Why does a 93-year-old have a car? She doesn't have a license now. Did she have glasses on? She fell asleep? Was she texting on her iPhone? God is sovereign on her jitterbug. She's in her little hover around. Oh, gosh. What else is God sovereign over? circumstances okay we need like what what Haley what did you just say because I don't know if I'm capable of dealing with this theological can of worms that we're about to open say it again oh she said it God is sovereign over sin what do you mean southwestern seminary student Haley help us out with that You just really want to kick my butt with it, right? Awesome. Well, let's move on. What else is God sovereign over? <laughs> what else is God sovereign over? Hold on one second, Pauline. Pauline, Paul, what did you say, Paul? Our salvation. Let it soak in. Help me out with that. Explain. We will be getting to Matthew 5 in a second, by the way. Help me out with it. What's it mean that God is sovereign over our salvation? He has to move in order for you to trust him. He chose us. He initiates the plan of redemption. What else? Huh? Our redemption is for his purpose and his glory. God is sovereign over our salvation. Before the foundation of the world. That messes with some Baptists in the room. What else? I'm Baptist too. Anybody else? What? Oh, Pauline, we we totally forgot Pauline. Pauline, what were you going to say? He is. He is the head. He is the shepherd of the church. Hallelujah. Pauline just did like the lasso. Woo! Oh my gosh. What is wrong tonight? All right. Keep that in mind as we think about what meekness is, okay? Somebody read. Somebody read this text for us. Blessed are the... Somebody read it. Blessed are the meek. That one. Blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. Meekness responding to God's sovereignty. 
And last week we painted the picture of what if, what if we lived our lives in such a way where we recognized that God was in control? Did you have some time to think about that this past week? What would it look like if not just like Sunday or when we pulled out the devotional or or whatever, but all of life we recognized God is on the throne and he, his ways are perfect, his timing is perfect, and even when I can't see what he is doing, I know that he's working for his glory and for my good among all the nations. We would have joy regardless of our circumstances. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith, you know it, James 1, right? Everybody's like, oh, joy. Or Romans 5, exult in your tribulations. Because that, in the midst of the tribulation, is when the love of God is poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit. That'll wreck you. That'll wreck your theology a little bit. What else? We wouldn't be so controlling or so stupid to think we are in control at all. Brent, define, expound on that a little bit. Right on. Okay, God, you're in control. You have written down a revelation to me, to us, to the church, in order to know what you, sovereign God, desire. So, therefore, my sole intention in life is to know what you say through your word so that I can live under that rule and authority in my life as you are king and I'm a subject, I'm a citizen within your kingdom. I'm not done yet. I'll keep going now. Right? So again, it points to the importance of the word of God in our lives and any way in which I am either ignorant of God's word or opposing God's word, what am I doing to this authority in in my life? What am I saying to this sovereign king in my life? You're not sovereign. We really say that? You're not in control. That verse that just haunts me, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that my sustenance, my um, nourishment every day is the word of God. And when I act in opposition to the word of God, I'm saying, God, you are not ruler. You're not sovereign. You are not king. Or I say, God, you're king over this 75%, but this 25% as an 18-year-old guy or a 30-year-old girl, I'm not cool with you being sovereign over that area. Which means if you try to do these little pie pieces of what's God's and what's not, what are you really saying to God? None of it is under your control. So let's look at this a little bit more. We're going to talk about some practical applications of this this week. Um, Jesus right here is quoting a a text that these guys and girls most likely would have known. And it's in Psalm 37. So if you would, take out your Bibles and turn to Psalm 37. I want to give you um, some portraits this week of what meekness looks like. Do you remember last week who we looked at in order to get one of these portraits of meekness? Anybody? I'll give you a hint. It was a boy, not a girl. He lived a long time ago. He had a staff. Yes, Moses. Moses. Uh, And we looked at Numbers 12 where Moses responded pretty awesomely to a situation where people were criticizing him and his leadership, something that he was used to because the people of Israel are a lot like us today, stubborn and stiff-necked. There we are. Uh, Numbers 37, look at verse 11. I'm I'm sorry, whatever. Psalm 37. Um, Go down to verse 11 and we'll get what he is actually quoting. um, And then we'll we'll come back to look at some of these things about God's sovereignty and the meekness of the Lord. Uh, Verse 11, but the humble, and we talked about this last week, it's the same word for meekness here. But the meek, what will they do? 
they'll inherit the earth. This is what Jesus is quoting here in Matthew chapter 5. The humble or the meek will inherit the land, or some of your translations say the earth, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Okay, prosperity gospel warning. If you take this verse out of context, God's going to get you, okay? Let's look at some of... We've got to go back to some previous verses in order to understand what meekness really looks like. So go back to uh, verse 5 in chapter 37 of Psalms. Um, oh, man. Actually, go back to verse 3. I mean, it's just so awesome. I love this chapter. Uh, verse 1 through 2, 1 and 2, there's this contrast going on of the wicked. And it, the context here is the wicked that has a lot of stuff. And it looks like everything's going well for the wicked. And then you get to verse 3, the contrast, okay? Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate, I love that word, cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Some of you are like, oh, that's how I get what I want. But when you look at this word delight, it means make Jesus, make God your delight, and then those desires that you have will be transformed, and you'll desire only the things that he delights in. It's really crazy. Keep going. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noon day. Okay, so a couple of things before we jump off the diving board into this text, okay? Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 20. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Or no, that's 6, 1. 5, 20 is you, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, have to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Also in Matthew 5, the point of this whole deal, Matthew 5, right there around verse 17, I think it is, that they may see your good works and praise or glory your Father in heaven. There's an action involved with this Sermon on the Mount message, okay? Yes, true righteousness, but also true righteousness that is a glory getter for God. As you live your life through the qualities of the Sermon on the Mount, poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, all the way down the list, you display the glory of God and you get glory reflected to God that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. Okay? That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? And it, it's impossible apart from Jesus Christ. Okay? So here's some portraits of meekness. Look at, go back to verse 5 of 37, Psalm 37. What do meek people do right here? What's the first word? Oh my gosh, yeah. Commit. Commit what? They commit their way to whom? Yeah. Meek people begin by trusting God. Trusting Him. That's a big one. They believe that he will work for them and vindicate them when others actively oppose them. Think of Moses. Moses was meek. Why? Because Miriam and Aaron brought this junk up against them. And what did Moses do while they were doing that? Sat there silent. Did he retaliate at all? No, not at all. Biblical meekness is rooted in the deep confidence that God is for you and not against you. Now, this is only true if you are a child of God. If you are not a child of God, then you are an enemy of God. It's a big deal, right? An enemy of God if you're not a child of God. Clear line in the sand, God is either for you or you are opposing holy God. Scary place to be, okay? Now, let's think of what this looks like practically. God is for you in your relationships, not against you. If you view him as sovereign and his control and his authority over all of your life, if you're like right on, 
Give me the word of God so I can know how to engage in relationships with other people. God is for you, not against you. God is for you with your sexuality. God is for you with your occupation. God is for you even though you had a crazy family background. He was sovereignly orchestrating that family background in order to bring him glory. God is sovereign. God is for you in your current living situation. God is for you in your battle for cancer. God is for you in your struggle over sin. God is for you in your remaining under adversity instead of running away from it. God is for you when you get the job. God is for you when you don't get the job. God is for you, not against you. And you trust that. God, you're for me. Carrie Job has a song, and basically the whole thing says, I know that you're for me. I know that you're for me. I know that you're for me. She has to remind herself. Do you know that God is for you? Because if you do, if you see his character in the Old Testament, then you respond by saying, God, whatever it is, open hand, I trust you. You're sovereign anyway, even if I don't trust you, but I trust you. Okay, look at verse 5 again. They trust God. They commit their way to God. That's interesting. Not only do they trust him, but they commit their way to him. Meek people commit their way to the Lord. It's weird how it's mixed here. It says commit first and then they trust. But we know that you have to first trust in order to commit your way to the Lord, right? Say yes. Okay. Meek people commit their way to the Lord. The Hebrew word right here for commit means literally roll. They roll it to the Lord. Huh, that's kind of weird. Katie, are you thinking of like a summer song? Is that why you're smiling? Okay, all right. They roll. Meek people have discovered not only is God worthy, like not only can is he for us, but he is trustworthy. Think of, a situation in your life right now where you went against the authority of God. If you would have viewed God as trustworthy, would things be different? Would it be better than the mess that you made of it? Yeah. Think of that crazy relationship that you were in that you're like, oh, I hate that I'm going to have to tell my future mate about that relationship. What if you would have trusted God and he's trustworthy? Would it be different? Because he is trustworthy. And so since he's trustworthy, they roll it all to God. They say, okay, God, you're sovereign, so here you go. Here's all the Tupperware. Here's all the containers. Here you go. Um, This looks like they've discovered they roll their way. They roll their business. They roll their problems. They roll their relationships. They roll their health. They roll their fears. They roll their frustrations. They roll everything onto the Lord. Because he's trustworthy. They admit, poor in spirit, that they are insufficient to cope with the complexities and the pressures and the obstacles of life. They recognize that they're a schmo. And they don't have anything within them to respond correctly. So they trust God. That he's willing and that he's able to sustain them with his grace. To restrain them with his grace. That's awesome. And to protect them with his grace. An added element of this, they depend on the means of grace that God has given to do it. What do I mean by means of grace? Anybody know? It's kind of a Presbyterian term in the house. Means of grace, those are ways in which God has given us to know more and experience Him more. What are means of grace that God has given? You're doing it right now. You're studying the Word. What else? Prayer is a means of grace. Communion is a means of grace. Fellowship with believers. Community is a means of grace. Solitude is a means of grace. Where God whispers. C.S. Lewis has a a quote that um, I'm really smart because I'm quoting C.S. Lewis. That's what a lot of people think sometimes. Uh, That God speaks to us in a lot of different ways. God speaks to us in a lot of different ways. 
but he whispers to us. Anybody know the quote? God speaks to us in a lot of different ways. He uses all these different things. But he not only whispers, but he shouts to us in our pain. That when we are in that midst of pain and suffering, Romans 5, James 1, that God communicates like a megaphone right to our ears and right to our heart. It's pretty cool. So what this means is his word. What is his word? He is trustworthy. He is good. What does his word have to say about relationships? What does his word have to say about sexuality? What does his word have to say about my occupation, my family background, my living situation? Cancer, struggle over sin, when you get the job and when you don't get the job. And do you trust? Number three, go back to uh, verse seven. They are quiet before God. Meek people are quiet before God, and they wait and expectantly hope in Him. Meek people are quiet and still before the Lord. They wait patiently for Him. They discover, first, God can be trusted. Two, that He is trustworthy. They commit their way to Him, and then they wait patiently for Him and Him alone. This doesn't mean they're lazy. It doesn't mean they're free of frenzy. They have a steady calm that comes from knowing that God is all-powerful. That God could change the things that I'm going through, but for some reason he's allowing it to happen. All of their affairs are under his control. And that he is gracious and will work all things for the best. Meek people have a quiet steadiness about their lives in the midst of chaos and upheaval. Um, A verse in Isaiah, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you. Do you know people who, when, if you would go through what they're going through, you would respond totally differently. You'd be angry, you'd be frustrated. They are meek people. They know God, they trust God, they commit their way to God, and they wait patiently for God. Now, this brings about the question, which I want you to discuss in your group. What is a way that we fight against God's sovereignty, where we don't wait patiently for the Lord? Okay? I want you to discuss that with your little trinity of trinities, okay? Go for it. What is a way in which we actively fight against the sovereignty of God? Somebody be brave and be the first one to talk. Hi, my name's Greg and I'm a Christian. Hi, Greg.
Okay, help me out. Give me, give me some that we're talking about. I asked this question on Facebook earlier today and had a bunch of old people tell me what they thought you would say. Um, if anyone in here wrote on there, you're not old. You're just seasoned with grace. Pam's not in here. She's not old. She's just 50. It's okay. What'd you say? I'm getting myself in trouble. What'd you say? Pauline. Leave it to Pauline. What do you mean, Pauline? What do you mean, I want this? Like this person or this characteristic? Amen. You are meek today, right? Yeah. Okay, so somebody else. How do we usurp God's authority, God's rule, God's sovereignty in our lives in the realm of relationships? Those of you that were here on Sunday, let me give you a little parenthesis. We talked about how if God's word is true and God's word is the defining authority in our lives, then it alone should define the way we live our lives. And we talked about Matthew 7, how all these other outside influences try to infiltrate the church and they become status quo in the church. They're status quo out there and so they come into the church and they become status quo in here. How is the area of relationships similar to it's out there and it's made its way in here? Okay. Let's go there. Let's take the first one. Boundaries in relationships. How is it out there? There aren't any. What do you mean? Like, what? define not any. I know, that's a really vague or weird question. Okay, somebody else. Physical boundaries. Help me out. What? Yeah. How else? I mean, definitely, we all get it in, like, the one-night stand situation where, I mean, hello. You know. If you're doing the one-night stand thing, you know that's wrong. And you know that's blatantly against God's authority. How else? That person causes you to compromise God's word, but you like that person, so you... Give me, give me a hypothetical situation, Brent. Make it relevant to us, Brent. Someone help him out. Say it again, because I talked a lot and they don't know what you actually said, so say it. Okay, give me, give me a situation, somebody. What? Dating an atheist. Why is that? Why is, I mean, missionary dating, Greg, whatever. Why is that a compromise? But w- w- 
hold on. So, like, how does that work out, though, in, in our lives of don't be unequally yoked? And that's talking about marriage, right? There, I, I li- I've been listening to so much stuff this week. Um, and this guy from, uh, I can't remember his name, Michael Lawrence. Um, he is one of the pastors at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Pretty cool. Um, I'll send you all the link to it. It really helped me out a lot this week where he said, you know, in, in the world, in the culture, there's these like stair steps of like, well, we like each other. And so we, then we go for coffee and then we hold hands. And then um, somebody wrote a book called The Steps to Intimacy. And it's, it, it's the stair step of a thing. And then we say, okay, I'm going to get here and stop. Because, I mean, I'm a Christian, and Christians don't have sex, right? Before marriage. I have sex a lot because I'm married. Yes. My wife is pregnant, thus, there you go. Okay? But he said, over here... I like that I could say that. Over here, there's this mentality biblically. If we allow the word of God to determine our lives biblically, there's only two situations in your life. Single, married. That's it. So not this, well, we're talking. I like him. We're talking. And... Uh, we're dating each other exclusively now. So, you know, the commitment level, and we say commitment level, the physical level is upped an ante, not commitment level. Because if there's physical stuff before the commitment of marriage, he's a tool, ladies. You should run the other direction. He does not respect you, ladies. What do you mean, don't give them all the credit? But biblically, the authority is on you as a man to step up and say, I'm not going to date somebody that dresses like that. Or you're not going to rule me, by the way. With the billboard, if you're a billboard, what you're selling is, I don't want to go there. But instead, how does that infiltrate the church? Everybody's all riled up now. How does that infiltrate the church? Uh, one of the uh, sex trafficking things that I've been looking at this week was the testimony of this lady, uh, and she wrote a book called The Sacred Bath, where she was a 15-year-old in Michigan. Her family moved to Michigan, and she went out on a date. Um, it wasn't even a date. It was just this like group thing that everybody did, like a football game or something like that, and she needed a ride home. And she got this ride home from this guy, went, and uh, the, they were... Supposed to go this way, they went this way. He says, oh, i got to pick something up for my house. You all know how this story is going to end, but you don't really. They go to his house. It's this beautiful house. He says, and he's driving this pretty sweet car, which is one of the reasons why she got in the car. Go to the house. Oh, I've just got to go get something inside real quick. Why don't you come inside? I mean, flashing lights. She's 15. Why the heck is she in, 15-year-old, in a car with a guy by herself? Where's mom and dad? Like, this is crazy. But it's commonplace. You all know that. Uh, so she goes to the house, uh, goes inside, and, uh, hey, it'll just be a second. Hey, do you want something to drink? Well, sure. Give him something to drink. That's all she remembers. You remember that? You hear those stories all the time? Yeah? Well, this is what happened to her. This story is one of those, like, blah, like, makes me want to throw up. She um, wakes up in um, just a stupor because she's been drugged. And she's been raped repeatedly. And he says to her, why don't you go clean up? You're going to go home. Um, And thus the name of the book, The Sacred Bath. She goes home. Her parents had just bought her a phone. And so later that night, she gets a call. Um, She can't tell her parents this. Her parents are upstanding citizens within the church. She gets a call, and uh, it's said to her, you will answer this phone every night from 12 until 5 o'clock in the morning. 
by the way, you were, pictures were taken of you with me, and if you tell anyone about this problem, um, we will take these pictures, post them on the internet, post them at your school, post them at your Catholic church, and you will never go to school. This is a 15-year-old. Girls in the room are like, just tell, get the guy in jail, but she's a 15-year-old, okay? 15-year-old, you, you, your life will be over, you won't be able to go to college, you won't be able to do any of those things. If you tell anyone, we will kill you. So every night, for two years, she picks up her phone. Her parents don't know. Her grades start following in school. She's, on, she's a cheerleader. Uh, she's kicked from the team because she misses all these practices. Teachers are aware of this problem, but they're so scared of these sex traffickers that they don't do anything. So for two years... Every night, multiple times, she is raped and abused by these men. She's pimped out. And the only way she got out was because her dad was transferred to another location. And so she asked, she's a believer, she was asked, um, she recently spoke at Grapevine High School. She was asked, how do you still have a smile on your face? How do you still have joy? How do, you, how do you say that God was sovereign over all of that? Okay, think of the stuff you're struggling with sovereignty of God with. Think of this lady, okay? And she replies, um, well, I didn't get pregnant. Thousands of men raped me. Sometimes multiple men at one time. And I never got pregnant. I don't have an STD. And now I share the story of God's grace in my life so that other people might be warned of what's going on. And they asked her too, uh, why did you wait so long to tell this story? Because she's older now and she has kids of her own. She's gone through college, paid her way through college, paid her way through graduate school. And um, she was asked that question, why are you just now telling the story? Well, when my daughter turned 15, I had to tell the story. Because she was aware of, oh my gosh, my daughter... It, this was several years ago. Look at what's happening within the culture now. She was able to say, God, you're sovereign. Or you think of uh, Corey Tim Boom. Y'all know her story? Yeah, where she, her, her sister and her were involved in, they were rescuing people that were going to concentration camps. They were put in prison. Sister dies. Corey Tim Boom is let out by a fluke accident, a clerical error. And she is telling about God's love and God's faithfulness after all the horrors that she went through in the concentration camp, okay? She's speaking one, one weekend, and um, someone comes up to her and says, she's speaking about God's love. I mean, add insult to injury. Speaking about God's love, and this man comes up to her, whom she recognizes. She says, does, the guy says, does God's love apply to me too, Fraulein? She said she knew as soon as he opened his mouth, it was the SS guard that brutally beat and raped her sister and killed her sister. And he held out, held out the hand, does God's, does God's love and forgiveness apply to me too? And she extended her hand to him and said, yes. She had a picture of God's sovereignty where if that were me, I would have waylaid on this guy SS guy. God's sovereignty. But instead, we say, you know what, God, great that you're in charge of salvation. Dig that. Thanks. Heaven. Good to go. But when it comes to relationships, I'm good. Or when it comes to what you want to do with my life, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to have lots of money. I'm good. You see how that infiltrates the church? Yes or no? Yeah. Give me some other things that you said in your group, and then we'll finish up. Yeah. The delight verse. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Ya. 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 And that was the first sin was man and woman had ultimate relationship with God and they had communion with him where he talked to them. And when another counselor came in, besides wonderful counselor, another counselor said, he didn't come at them with a lie, he just came at them with, did God really say this? I mean, he pointed out, this is what the word says, but did God really say this? And so they had this choice to reinterpret what God had said based on what they wanted or to sovereign rule control of God. And they chose and were here and messed up because of that woman and that passive man. There he goes. All right, so portrait of meekness. Look at verse 30, or look at chapter 37. Look at verse 7. They trust, they commit, they wait patiently. I know, as a married person, I know that that is hard. I know that that's difficult to not only go to God's word with, God, what do you say it means to be a biblical man? What do you say it means to be, be a biblical woman? How do those two interact with each other? Should I adopt the dating principles? Should I adopt the relationship principles of the world where um, I, I am involved in physical Lots of physical stuff in order to show my love before marriage. That's what the world says. God's word does not say that. God's word says some pretty crazy things against that. Do not awaken love until it's so desired. Song of Solomon. Over and over again. Don't awaken love. Don't even go there. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. God's will for your life is your sanctification and then he expounds on what sanctification is, that you would abstain from all forms of sexual immorality. Or Ephesians that says, there should not even be a hint, a sprinkling of sexual immorality among you. You see how if we would have view the world based on what the word of God says, and view our lives based on what the word of God says, instead of um, Jersey Shore... Instead of that latest Nicholas Sparks movie or book, you see how things would be totally different? Yeah. Look at the last part. Um, this is the biblical parallel of Matthew 5. And so the fourth thing about them, verse 7, is they don't fret themselves over the wicked who prosper in the way. Or as verse 8 says, they refrain from being angry. Their family, their work, and their life are in God's sovereign hands. They trust him. Your singleness is in God's sovereign hands. Your married life is in God's sovereign hand. In his timing, in his way. Do you trust him? Or is it one of those pie chart areas of, I trust him with everything else, but this, I'm going to do things my way. See, with relationships, another thing that this guy said is, you start a relationship with the end in mind. Marriage. Who do you want to marry? Do you want to marry some jerk? Or do you want to marry some... Can't use that word. Do you want to marry some sleaze of a girl? Yes or no? Anybody? See, I counsel with a lot of people. And they're so surprised when their relationship doesn't work out, when they're dating a loser. Or they're dating some girl that they pick up at a bar who's dressed like a hoe. And they wonder why the guy or the girl then cheats on them. Do you know, do you know these, do you have these conversations with people? Yeah. Because she's a hoe. Because she... Actually, deeper than that. That's surface. Because on the inside, she is believing the lie that that's how she gets love. 
sad morning. Last week we looked at Moses. Let me give you one more portrait of meekness. I know we're hitting on the relationship thing a lot tonight. But I really feel like within our community, if if the gospel is real, if our identity is in Jesus and not what other people say about us or our, our schedule on the weekends, then we should be different. Ephesians says, don't be like the Gentiles. We should be, there should be this salt and light difference. Not a legalism thing, but a Jesus has redeemed me and I am of value to Jesus. So I don't have to do that. I don't have to go there. Okay? Uh, let me give you one more. Uh, go to James chapter 1. And I know that we're long. It's because of the Rangers game and I'm a jerk and keeping you here. DVR, TiVo with people. Hulu. Okay? James 1. Are you there? This is after the whole trials. This is after considerate pure joy. And it's after the each one of you is... Let no one say when you're tempted that you're tempted by God. Each one of you is tempted when you are enticed and carried away by your own lust. Lust gives birth to sin, or lust is conceived and gives birth to sin, and blah, 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 death. Okay? It's after all that. Verse 19. Go to verse 19. This is how meekness is involved in your life right now. Okay? Everybody say right now. Right now. Here we go. Know this, my beloved brethren. That every man, let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Quick hear, slow speak, slow anger. For the anger of man does not work out the righteousness of God. Therefore, as a result of that, put away all filthiness, all rank growth of wickedness, and receive... Take in, put away all that stuff, and receive with meekness, with gentleness, with unlimited strength under control, meekness, sovereign hand of God, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Let me hit this real quick. James has in mind two types of people. He pictures one, on one hand, a person who does not like to listen to what other people have to say. Especially if they speak with authority. Especially if they speak with the authority of the word of God. This person is quick to speak and becomes quickly angry if the words of others cross his opinion or call his behavior into question. He's not receptive to the word of God. He filters it through his own desires and receives it selectively. He does the Tupperware thing. I'll take this part of God's word, this part of God's word, this part of God's word. I'm the master of God's word in my life, not sovereign God. And you better not come at me with the word of God to question my character. But the soft-spoken conversation in which two modern people defer to each other's opposite opinions, not feeling the need to submit his opinion to the standard of truth higher than himself, and thus not exposing himself to the possibility of error and repentance, that is not the spirit of meekness. So over here you've got this guy, someone comes at them with the word of God in love, in grace, and they are not slow to speak. But you don't understand, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you just don't understand, and that's your opinion, and blah-blah-blah-blah-blah, and they get angry. That's the fool. The other person, meekness, this is the point, is teachable. Meekness is teachable. Slow to speak. Do you ever have those conversations, and my wife and I had to talk about this early on in our marriage, where you have those conversations, and it's it's not a conversation, it's a discussion, which is really a fight and an argument. Christian people who are married fight, okay? All right? So in one corner, in this corner, you're having the conversation and you're speaking and you can tell that the other person is not listening to a word you're saying. They just want to, they, they, they want to get what they're saying interjected. They're not, their wheels are turning. They're not even hearing a word. That is not the meek person. Okay. Slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. But concluding what he is hearing is dead, wrong, and harmful. Let's say you are slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. 
Does that mean you just sit there and you let people live in sin? Does it mean you just sit there and you're passive all the time? No, not at all. Some people confuse meekness with never criticizing or rebuking someone in accordance with the word of God. Meekness is not the same as the refusal to rebuke or correct. Sometimes in being slow to anger, slow to anger, but you eventually get angry. The perfect picture of this is Jesus. Remember Jesus, come learn meekness from me. What did Jesus do in the temple with the money changers? Anger, righteous indignation. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? He grieved in his heart and he was angry because of their self-righteousness. Jesus got angry, okay? Jesus said, I'm meek, I'm lowly, I'm in heart, yet Jesus became angry. Okay, so meekness is teachable. Meekness and rebuke, how do they work together? Let me read to you Galatians 6, 1 through 2. You don't have to turn there. Just write the reference down. It's worthy of you going back to later. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of meekness, looking to yourself, lest you also be tempted. That's Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Not only is meekness slow to speak and slow to anger, but when it decides that it must speak, it must be a truth teller, even words of correction, as we have here in Galatians 6.2. I mean, Paul is correcting them about correcting here in Galatians 6. It speaks with a deep awareness that it is fallible. When you speak to someone else correcting, rebuking, you recognize that you are sinful and fallen too, and that the only authority you have is based on God's word, not your opinion. More specifically, when meekness reaches out to bring back a person overtaken in sin, it first takes the log out of its own eye and then admits that apart from grace, free and undeserved grace, it would fall into the very sin it is now trying to correct. Look to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Let him who thinks that he stand take heed, lest he fall. The meek man stands in the mirror of God's word and is suspicious of him or herself realizing they have sin in their own heart. Matthew 7 deals with this. Get the speck out of your eye, log in the eye, the whole thing. Okay? Meekness. Sum it up. Meekness begins when we put our trust in God. Then because we trust him, we commit our way to him. We roll to him every aspect of our lives. Everything. Because he's trustworthy. Anxieties, frustrations, plans, relationships... Cast your care upon him. Cast your burden upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. He's on your team. We roll to him with all of those things. And then we wait patiently for the Lord. Putting our hope in his word. Putting our hope in his character. We trust him, his timing, his power, his grace to work things out in the best way for his glory. Because that's this whole deal is we are a glory getter for God. The result of trusting God and the rolling of our anxieties onto God and waiting patiently for God is that we don't give way to quick and fretful anger or frenzy. We don't live like there's no God. We know in the midst of our election right now, there is a God on the throne. He's in control. He's in power. We're not lazy. We still have a responsibility, but he's in control. Instead, like Moses, we give place to wrath and hand our cause over to the Lord. Because, you know what? God is a lot better at kicking butt than I am. And if there's butt that's going to be kicked, God does a better job than some short little Italian. And I've had to do this in my life, where I say, God, vengeance is yours. You take vengeance, not me. I had to have that conversation yesterday with myself and the Lord. And then as James says, in this quiet confidence in God, we're slow to speak, quick to listen. We become reasonable and open. We invite correction into our lives instead of running away from it. Meekness loves to learn. It counts the blows of a friend as precious. And when it must say a critical word to a person caught in sin or error, it speaks from the deep conviction of its own sinfulness and fallibility. It's the picture of this. John Piper gave this example. It's the picture of me being a punching bag, okay? Not me being a porcelain dummy. Punching bag, when it receives a blow, what's a punching bag do? It's pliable with the blow. 
it moves with the blow. It absorbs the blow versus the porcelain dummy, what happens? It shatters and breaks the pieces and comes back at the person. Well, yeah, you did this, though. Or don't you, you're not going to do that to me. I'm going to punching bag. God is is sovereign. God, whatever you bring, you're sovereign. You'll give me the grace to sustain. Or something happens, and then boom, I'm angry. Somebody comes to me with confronts, loves me enough to confront me with sin in my life, and I'm just going to unleash the pit of hell on them. Or take their character and run it through the mud. May we be meek. May we learn meekness from Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. Learn from me and because I am gentle and meek. Jesus, we thank you for this time. Lord, um, only you can make sense of all of this that we've talked about. You take the word and the searchlight of the scripture, and you evaluate not just our outward, emotion, our outward stuff, our lives, but our inward motives of our heart. And Lord, you, I know, because I know you, and I know how you did this in my life as I studied this and thought about this over the past couple of months, you are revealing areas of our heart where we are usurping the authority of a sovereign God. And God, that hurts. And our first reaction is to react instead of respond. Lord, we thank you for the grace where you communicate truth to us even when it hurts a little bit, like alcohol that comes on a wound. But Lord, we know that the purpose is to clean the wound and make us whole and healthy. And we know from your word that only happens through healthy doctrine. So God, give us an injection of your sovereignty of all aspects of our life. Yes, we hit it a lot tonight, our relationships. It's a great place to recognize that you're in control but also those other areas, our job, our future, our country. Lord, you're in control. God, may we get that. May we not live like practical atheists through the week where we say that you're in control, but we don't, we don't live in light of it. God, for the person here that's angry and mad at the what at what your word says, Lord, I ask that you would um, continue to wrestle with the sinner's heart, continue to fashion them, continue to break them. And Lord, I thank you for this, this message and how you are, oh, you are putting me through the furnace of, are you going to trust that I'm sovereign? Lord, I want to respond by saying, yeah, you're in control. Thanks for Jesus.